It's always worked for several years now, so that's, that's a blessing. God is good. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of 2 Timothy as we proceed through this book. This is my second sermon in it, and we walk through this book this year. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 12 this morning, and we're going to be talking about fearless gospel power. Fearless gospel power, which is something we need and the world definitely needs as well. So the words will be on the screen, but if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd love for you to follow along with me. Paul writes to Timothy and says, So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Instead, share in the suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher, and this is why I suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Let's pray. Father, we, we love your word, and we want it to be something that ignites a fire in our hearts and encourages us to be fearless because we know that your gospel is the power of God to save souls. And may this message encourage all of us to be more vocal to be more deliberate and intentional with our faith and our gospel. And if someone's here that doesn't know you, may it encourage them to trust you as their Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, this week I heard an interesting statistic. Did you know that no, the people that are called, they say they have no religious affiliation, now outnumber all religions in the United States? There's, they're called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns. They're nuns. Um, they don't claim any religious affiliation. The Pew Research found that people who say they're unaffiliated with any kind of religion is the largest cohort in the United States. Um, it, they, they're somewhere around 25 or 26 percent. Catholics are at 23 percent. Protestants are at 24 percent. What does that even mean? What does that mean for us? Well, finally, it means lost people have finally decided to be honest about their faith and about their religion. It means they finally decided, I'm going to say no. I don't, I don't know anything. I'm, not, I don't, I'm non-existent. My faith is non-existent. But it also means for us and for those of us who follow Christ Jesus that we now have a broad, wide, open mission field right here in the United States. People who declare themselves to have no religious affiliation. And that's great because we offer them a savior that has no religious affiliation. He is not a religious savior. We have a savior who seeks their soul and seeks to love them. He doesn't care if they're affiliated with a religious group. And that's why we need a fearless gospel power working in us. And that is Paul's point today. So as I read the passage, I understand some context here. Second Timothy is Apostle Paul's final letter. It's the last letter he wrote. It's the last letter to anybody that he wrote. 
And it's written probably months before his execution in 67 AD. He will be executed. He will be beheaded according to history. But during this time is the reigning of Nero, the emperor of Rome. And Nero, about 64 AD, which is about three years before this, burned the city of Rome. He intentionally had it set on fire. And then he blamed the Christians for it. So everybody is looking for Christians. Everybody is hunting down Christians. Soldiers, citizens, even conquered people are using this as an excuse to persecute Christians. To persecute Christians. And in all this, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy to try to encourage him to keep ministering the gospel and to keep strong in the faith as he does this. So Paul commands Timothy here in this passage to take the spirit that God gives, the spirit of God, and use it for proclaiming the gospel regardless of the price. Don't give up. And we today, in this passage, we need to think about that. The Holy Spirit lives in us as believers. We should all know that and we should all rely on that. But it's so so that we can fearlessly broadcast the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the world, to the nuns, those who don't claim any religious affiliation. They now have a blank sheet of paper we can begin to address. So how can we, how can one be fearless with the gospel? How can we be fearless with sharing the God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Well, there's two facts that we've got to remember, two facts that we need to know, and that's what our points are this morning. First of all, you need to know that Jesus saved you for a purpose, okay? He saved you for a purpose. Verses 8 through 10, I want to read those again for us. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us. And called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There's a lot in there. I thought I was picking a short passage for this week so that it kind of contained it a little bit. There's just a lot of meat in here. So I'm going to try to get through it without leaving anything out. But this passage starts with where Timothy is right now. Timothy's at Ephesus, close to Rome, not right there next to it, but the persecution is running rampant through the whole empire. And so Timothy is in Ephesus, and we read last week in verse 7, Paul encourages him, we didn't get a spirit of timidity and cowardice we got a spirit of power a holy spirit of power so he starts where timothy is and he's going to trace it back to how you can get there paul tells timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel ministry why would he do that why would he tell timothy that then he tells timothy not to be ashamed of paul's imprisonment why would he do that Like I said, at this time in history, Nero is on a rampage. The Romans are persecuting everybody. It is terrible. There's murdering, there's persecuting, there's torturing, there's hunting down any part of the sect of the Nazarene, as they called it. There's even history records that they would take Christians, hang them, and light them on fire as lighting in his garden at Nero. They called them Roman candles. That happened. That's real. 
That's the kind of stuff that's going on. So I don't know about you, but if I was Timothy, I'd be a little afraid too. I'd be a little afraid. But Paul's encouraging him. Timothy's embarrassment could be connected to his fear of, of Nero. Timothy's timidity that we talked about in verse 7 last week, it could be the fear of Roman violence. Legitimate, legitimate to be afraid of those things and embarrassed by those things. But Paul encourages him. And guess where Paul is right now? He's writing from Mamertine Prison in Rome, the worst prison ever known and ever recorded. This prison has existed since about 600 B.C. And it's been, it was used all the way up to 300 A.D. Executions took place at this prison. They had two levels at this prison, an upper level and a lower level. And the lower level was called Death Row, and that's where Paul was, a dungeon basically. And he was held there until his execution in 67 A.D. But Paul then writes to Timothy and invites him, sharing the suffering, sharing the suffering. Why would he do that? What a strange, strange invitation. Invites him to share in the suffering. Well, here's why. Because the world hates Jesus. The world hates Jesus. We know Jesus as a, as a, a, a compassionate, saving, loving master, but the world hates him. The world hates him. And they will hate his father, followers, Jesus told us. All true followers will suffer in some way. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because telling people that they will go to hell if they don't change and trust Christ, that they, that they will be condemned to hell and not go to heaven, that upsets people. That upsets their religious sensitivities because they want to be in control of this. But see, Paul then turns and after he's invited him to share in the suffering and told him not to be embarrassed and, and all, he, he tells him the truth of what, how you get through this. God's power. Right there in verse 8, it's all of God's power. God's power is the key to a surviving faith in this day and age and in this time of, of uh, persecution that he was going through. It's a supernatural power. It's not something we can conjure up on our own. And that power is only available to those who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's only available to us. The Holy Spirit is the conduit. We don't have any other way of getting it. So we don't need to be ashamed. We need to share in the suffering. Now, this question still stands. Why would Paul encourage his spiritual son, as he called him up in verse 2, 1 or 2, why would he invite him to join in the suffering? It's almost like Paul is expecting Timothy to maybe get put in prison one day. I don't know. There's only one answer to this, though. There's really only one answer, and it's all in verse 9. This is where it all begins with believers. He has saved us and called us. That's what he's done, okay? That's the reason why we're invited to the suffering. See, Jesus calls people to faith and a new life. Jesus commanded believers to take up their cross. Believers must surrender to a life of self-denial, denying what you want. See, Jesus saves us to serve. We don't serve to get saved. Don't get me wrong here. There's no works involved here. We are saved by Jesus Christ to serve. Ephesians 2.10, the, the famous verses of 2.8 and 9, where for by grace you were saved through faith. We all know that one, but read verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. God's call to salvation comes with a purpose, an obligation, if you want to call it that, 
to him, to God, for the salvation he gives us. See, his grace alone saves the soul. And by that same grace, believers are called to live for him. See, we're not saved just to go on our merry way and do what we want. We're saved to live differently. We're saved. We're called. You have a calling from God to live differently. Because of grace, we can do that. There's a purpose that God has here. He says that very clear. Paul says that there's a purpose that God has for saving us. And if you reject that purpose, you're probably not saved. I mean, this is that simple. The purpose that God calls us all to live our lives for Christ in this crazy world is the purpose God's put on us. And if you reject it, it may mean you're not saved. A truly changed heart will live for the purposes of God. Disciples of Jesus Christ want to do his bidding. Not because we conjured up the desire, but because he's called us to do it, and our heart hurts to do it. We want to do it. What makes it possible, and what makes this so other incredible, is what Paul else says, else, else he says here in verse 9. God planned this for believers before time began. That was his plan all along. Before time even started, before the first grain of sand was created, before God spoke light into existence, he had this plan in place. Now, can you imagine the power behind that plan? See, God's plans don't ever fail. And he decided this long before he knew you. Uh, he already knew you, but, and he saved you anyway. But he chose to save every soul that will be saved and to grant them an eternal purpose, and it's all because of grace. I think we just don't understand grace too well sometimes. See, grace is God's decision, not ours. Grace is God's decision. It's on him. Grace is always the decision of the person handing it out. You can't make anybody hand out grace. You can't coerce it. You can't pull it from them. Grace is never earned. It's never bought. It's never deserved, or it wouldn't be grace. It's never snookered. We don't trick God into saving us. It is freely given by God alone. That's grace. And so God, before time began, in eternity past, he chose who would be saved. I know that ruffles some feathers a little bit, and we'll talk about it some more in a minute. But, but we call this doctrine the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. And it is all of God. It is all God's business. And it is all by his providence. And you ask, well, why? And I'm saying, because God's God. That's the only answer we got. He's God. We're not. We have to live with it. His ultimate purpose is to bring himself glory and him alone. And so no one can tamper with it or rightfully question it. It is his will. It is his plan. It is his desire. And the good news, though, is he did it purely out of love. He loved us so much that he planned for this. It's out of his love and for his glory. Because all have sinned. Nobody's good enough to make it into heaven by yourself. And so love chooses to save. Love chooses to give us grace. And the purposes of salvation were decided before time. And now they're known. Now they're revealed. How do we know this? Well, verse 10 tells us. They're, re they're revealed in Jesus Christ. His incarnation, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension proves it all true. That makes it true. That's why we believe it. The Greek word used here for, for making evident is the same word we would use for epiphany. 
An epiphany is a word you use when you're certain of the outcome. You know this is going to happen. In some of the Greek historical documents, when an army knew that they were going to be overrun or they were going to be defeated, it was kind of like the general got an epiphany. <laughs> we're going to lose, you know. And so that's how that word is used. Here is the certainty. By Jesus' blood and righteousness, spiritual death, spiritual death is abolished. Eternal life is made available, period, dot. It's by Jesus. Perfect light shines in the hearts of those who receive it through faith in Jesus. And his appearing, God incarnate, and his resurrection as Lord of Lords prove the eternal outcome. Proves that the eternal outcome of his great sacrifice will be our eternal life. Proves it. You should have no reason to doubt. See, that's the kind of certainty we're looking for. That's the kind of certainty that gives us the gospel power we need to be witnesses. Eternal death is defeated when Jesus rose from the grave. It's proof that death lost. Satan lost. He's already lost. He's already ultimately defeated. He's just fighting as a wounded person. And believers now have eternal spiritual life. And followers of Jesus have escaped the eternal death that comes in hell. We, we have that by faith in Jesus Christ. It's been revealed. It's been made evident. You should be having an epiphany right now about it. Believe, so Paul tells Timothy right here to be unashamed because God saved him. Saved him to eternal life for an eternal purpose. Salvation grants a fearless heart. Bravery starts in our heart, by the way. It doesn't start in externally. You've got to decide to be brave and courageous. And as John Wayne said, courage is just facing your fear. He probably was quoting somebody or a movie script. But I want you to hear what Paul says about how our suffering and our election go together. In Romans chapter 8, very familiar passage, Romans 8, 28. We all quote that so often. But I'm going to read the, the, the part afterwards, too. Romans 8, 28, Paul writes, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called, there's that word again, called according to his purpose. There's that word again. That's all verse 28. Listen to verse 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. There's your trip to heaven right there in one, one verse. It starts with a predestined. God chose you way back. It starts there and it proceeds all the way till you're glorified in heaven. To illustrate this point a little more boldly, kamikazes, suicide terrorist bombers, and Christians have one common idea, to die for a victory, to die for a purpose. The difference is when Christians die, we already know we've won. We already know we've won. We're certain of the outcome, absolutely certain. That should make us fearless for the gospel. The war has already been won. The knowledge of eternal life should make Christians the bravest witnesses in the world. So, my question this morning is, why are we ashamed of the gospel sometimes? 
Why do we duck and hide and bob and weave? Mostly, I think it's fear of what others will think or because we, we claim Jesus as Lord and Savior that we're going to wonder what they'll think about us. Maybe we believe the lie that, oh, Christianity is a crutch or religion's a crutch. I need a crutch. I don't know about you. I need a crutch. We don't want to come off as fanatical and cultish. Sometimes we are embarrassed that way. We want our testimony to be reserved and kind of under the radar. We don't want to highlight ourselves. And some of us, I agree, are shy, timid, introverted. I'm one of those, believe it or not. (laughs) I'm one of those. I can't convince anybody of that, but I am. And we're afraid sometimes to even just do discipleship. We're afraid to get our our hands deeper in God's word. We fear in being embarrassed that we don't know God's word or we don't know something. But that's the whole point of discipleship is to learn something. We we kind of excuse ourselves from learning more about our faith, saying, well, I don't want to become a fanatic. You need to be a fanatic. This world needs fanatics for Jesus, okay? We need these people. Else the nuns are going to go to hell without ever hearing the gospel. See, our bravery toward gospel persecution never comes from us, though. You don't have to pull yourself up into it. It comes from God. So spending time with God, spending time learning God, that's what brings your bravery on. That's what makes you fearless. Now, back to the suffering part. We don't like suffering. Why will we suffer? Well, it's inevitable. Jesus made it very clear. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. We live in a country where we're not persecuted very much. We're maybe ridiculed, made fun of, called the enemy sometimes even, but we're not persecuted yet. I mean, because many people are bothered, they're offended, they're annoyed by our righteous way of living. They're annoyed by, by the fact that we hold to certain values and we hold to this word. They're annoyed by the fact that our faith is exclusive, but it's really not. Anybody can believe in Jesus. We don't exclude anybody. We just tell you, you can't get to heaven without believing in Jesus. But they get offended by that. So being full of fearlessness when it comes to the gospel, it comes to a choice of how we're going to live our lives. It really does. It comes down to, are we going to choose to live a life like the world, no suffering, no problems, no no uncomfortableness, or are we going to be living like Christ where our suffering will be rewarded one day? in heaven. Now, the last question I want to ask in this section is, why does predestination by God bother us? And I know it bothers some people. It's a tough doctrine. But the first thing I'll tell you is what I've been telling everybody. It's God's business. I don't get to decide. I don't even get to just, you know, look around for it. It's not supposed to drive anything I do. It does not mean we don't do missions. It does not mean we don't do evangelism. It does not change or eliminate passages in the Bible. There are explanations for why those passages are there. But the reason we have a hard time is because we only look at it from our perspective, which is normal. We see it as infringing on our rights. We see it as our will or our self-determination is being interrupted because God chose who was going to be saved. Because we have this idea that we're masters of our own destiny. And if you've lived a Christian life long enough, you should know by now you're not. You're not the master of your destiny. God's in control. We're not. We don't want to rule our own life. You know, you know, the fact that trying to rule your own life, that's, how, that's why we need a Savior. That's what Adam and Eve was doing in the garden. They were trying to rule their own life. This will make you like God. 
oh boy, I want to be like God. I want to be God. So we must look at creation with a view of God's power. He makes the rules. He sets the boundaries. He establishes his purpose. It's all him. So when we get offended at God, <laughs> when we get offended at God because he chose some and not others, it sounds like we want to be God. And that's Adam and Eve's failure too. That's the whole reason we're here. Sounds like we want to make the decision. So if God predestines us for salvation, it is a glorious thing. Because he didn't have to. He didn't have to choose anybody. When Adam and Eve blew it in the garden, he could have just canned the whole thing. But that wasn't his plan, see? His plan was made before that happened, and he knew that was going to happen. He set it up. He secures our future, and he has provided the only way. So our fearlessness in living and teaching the gospel comes from God's power, not our own. That's where it should come from. So are you a fearless gospel warrior? When we get ourselves out of the way, when we stop trying to stand up for ourselves or, or plan our life and we surrender our plans, God does some amazing things. And we've got testimony in here, people's lives, that God's done that. So know this, you are saved for a purpose. That's the fact that Paul gives Timothy right here. You are saved for a purpose. And that should, if you really, really accept it, that should make you fearless for the gospel. Well, moving on to the second point. You know you're saved, I hope. If you don't, if you say yes to that question, great. Know that it is forever secure in God's hands and let that also help you be fearless. That's the second fact this morning. Know Jesus saves you forever. Verses 11 and 12, let me read those again for us. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher. And that is why I suffer these things. But I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. You guys have no idea how many times that hymn was going over and over in my head this week as I was working on this. It's like, that's a hymn we sang back at home, you know, a lot. Paul uses his own testimony right here. He gives Timothy a testimony in these two verses regarding his suffering and his courage. The gospel message speaks of an eternal, everlasting salvation well, what's the gospel? Well, I'm glad you've asked because sometimes people get confused what the gospel is. It is the good news that the curse of spiritual death and eternal punishment can be avoided. It's good news. You can avoid eternal death. You can avoid hell. How? By faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, which means you have to decide that you need forgiving which means you have to be convicted of sin. And that's another whole story. But the gospel is the fact that his death, burial, and resurrection provides us a way to believe and be forgiven and be eternally saved. Sounds simple, right? It does sound simple. But believing it, living it, and loving it requires more help, which is what Paul talks about in his roles in God's purpose for the gospel was to help. First of all, God made him a herald. 
We don't use that word a whole lot, but it basically means someone who's going to broadcast. I remember town criers. I heard, heard about those. I don't remember them. I'm not that old. But we, we hear about town criers. A herald was also a person like an envoy or an emissary that you sent to another kingdom, another government, or another army to tell them what you were, what you were proposing. Paul was a herald. Second, he was an apostle. He was an apostle. It's an office of messenger given with certain power and authority by God in the New Testament. He was ordained as the apostle Paul to the Gentiles in Damascus. And he served the gospel that way until his death. Always declaring himself an apostle, a messenger of God's grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. And then the third thing he said he was was a teacher who continues the education after Christ saves someone. This role, this role is important because it replicates what we already know if we're already a believer. It passes it on to others, what, my, what God taught them first. I mean, all discipleship is is me teaching you what I know, what I do, and you teaching someone else when it comes to our Christian faith. Salvation is the foundation. It is the base for all of eternal life. But remember the purpose we talked about earlier. We need knowledge. We need wisdom. We need maturity. In our faith. We need those things. And a teacher helps provide that. And we pursue that ourselves by personal discipleship. You don't have to necessarily do it in a group. Just study your Bible. Read your Bible. But we have groups to help each other because that's what church does. Now these roles seem very non-threatening. If you read them and you go, well, why is Paul in prison then if he was just doing that? <laughs> well, be advised, the world hates these roles. The world hates what we teach. And these things made Paul a target. He spoke truth which disagreed and countered their idolatry, their religious mindsets. His message offended all the religions of the Roman Empire. And this is before Rome became a Christian empire back in the, like 316 AD. So this, they, they had all kinds of gods. The Roman gods were just the Greek gods turned into renamed. So he upset them and the whole Roman Empire came down on Paul. And they arrested him and they took him to prison. And the truth is, is that Paul is in prison for one reason and one reason only. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason he's there. He spoke it. He taught it. He proclaimed it. He heralded it. And he suffers for that message. Yet even through all these violent sufferings, all this being in a dungeon where you probably never saw the light of day very often, Paul never forgot that he was saved in Christ Jesus forever. He never had a doubt that he was going to lose his salvation. He always doubted that he was worthy of it. I think he always was questioning that, but hear what Paul's declaration is there in verse 12 after he says, that's why I suffer. He says, but I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. And that day is when Jesus comes back. Paul is still waiting for that day to reveal what he's entrusted to God. His faith persuades him, it convinces him, it makes him certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that God the Father will guard the message Paul preaches. He fully trusts that his service, his suffering, and his salvation are secure for eternity. All the way to the very end of this life. He is unashamed of the chains he wears. He is unashamed of being in the prison, in the dungeon. 
He is totally unashamed of that. Now, you and I might consider ourselves failures if we got put in jail for preaching the gospel. Paul didn't. He rejoiced in it. He celebrated it. It was almost like a, a, something that affirmed he, he, was, he was preaching the right message because he got put in jail. Several times he got put in jail. But he knew because Christ, of Christ, the hope of glory. Paul knew that his incarceration and his pending execution was God's purpose for God's glory alone. Paul was unashamed because he was in the center of God's will. He knew that. Now, I'm going to take a little break here and talk about the translations a little bit. I don't know what translation you may be reading from, but there are two ways that this last verse has been translated and just the last ending of it. It's two ways. I've looked at six different translations, and it's about a 50-50 split. So for some reason, the wording caused translators to translate it differently, but the wording is the same in the Greek. It's either what God entrusted to Paul or what Paul entrusted to God. But really, the meaning is the same. See, God entrusted Paul with the gospel, and Paul entrusted God with the fact that the gospel saved him. So it's really the same thing. So it's nothing to really lose our minds over. It's not a discrepancy in the Greek manuscripts. It's actually a discrepancy in how English people interpret that. Yes, Bob, I even looked at the KJV. <laughs> and they're one of the ones that agree with one of these. And so it's, it's just an interesting issue. But Paul's eternal life is guarded by God in Christ. He has no doubt, no doubt at all. And that is the gospel he preaches. Paul faced his final months of life fully assured that he was going to be redeemed. He was going to be saved. That his message was heard and that his life was fearless. He knew that. He knew it without a shadow of a doubt. Now, how much did Paul suffer? Turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to read that in a moment. But I want to read to you some of the things that happened to Paul while he was on missionary duty in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 27. Listen to this. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I would, by the way, Timothy was there at that stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, toil and without toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention the other things. He didn't name it all there. But in Philippians... Listen how Paul reacts to that pain. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. Listen, listen to his mindset about this. Now, he's writing this letter from a jail as well, I think. But everything that was gained to me, this is Paul writing, but everything that was, was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. <laughs> More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. 
My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. That's a great attitude to have. And to be in prison when you have that attitude and write it down. That's the crazy part about this fearless gospel power is it takes an attitude change. And I think one of the things we need to realize is that our eternity is secure. So nothing down here can hurt us, really. Our eternal soul is safe. Tim McGraw, a country music singer, wrote a song years ago called Live Like You Were Dying. And it's a country song about making the most of life when you were faced with death. And the verses talk about a prognosis from a doctor. And he talked about living his life like he was dying. And you know what? As believers, we should live every day that way. Not as if we're dying, but as if we're already living eternally. Because everything we do now matters in heaven. As a believer in Christ, you're storing up reward in heaven. We need to live fearlessly every day in every way. Don't wait till you have some diagnosis like the song says. So in application-wise, these two verses kind of point to two things, death and persecution. These last two verses that Paul talks about. First one, death, okay? We don't like to face that, and I know that it's been a struggle. One of my biggest adjustments as becoming a pastor was being face-to-face with it so much. You know, it's just not something I expected. And I don't think there's a seminary class out there that could prepare you for that. But it is. But it forced me to really evaluate what I believed. What I really, really, really believed deep down. That those who believe in Jesus Christ, this is not their home. They're passing through. And it forced me to evaluate my own eternal life. How was I living my life? Was I living it as if I had eternal life or as if this was it? See, this happens to everybody in humanity. The death ratio is still one for one, okay? Nobody lives forever in this body. But it is unnatural to our minds. It's not something we look forward to, not something we think a lot about. We fight it, we dread it, we resist it. We cannot stop it, though, unfortunately. But we have a solution because Jesus Christ has saved us. And Jesus provides the only real comfort to death that we know. There's nothing else out there. People convince themselves that they're just going to cease to exist when they die. But we know that's not true. Paul faced it right here. He's in the prison. He embraced with joy the sufferings of his ministry. His faith in God's security in his soul fed his bravery to tell the gospel, to preach it, even from the prison cell. The second thing he talks about is persecution. And one day in our life, we may face persecution, even in this country. I mean, there's a lot of things out there going on that looks dire for Christianity in the future. But what will you do if you're faced with persecution? What will you do if the law is changed? Will you stop believing? I hope not. Will you cease associating with other believers? I hope not. Will you dispose of your Bibles? All of them. I know most of us probably have several. Will you dispose of them? I just think all the time about the persecuted church in all these countries we pray for. Nigeria, 5,000 people died for their faith last year. Churches are burned down. That's just one country. 
They're still meeting. That's why churches are burned down. They didn't give up. They didn't stop. Suffering will solidify your faith, believe it or not. Matter of fact, one Iranian Christian told a, a missionary that they're praying for the church in America to be persecuted so we will get serious about our faith and do something about it. So persecution, prison, pain, all of these will either, they'll either firm up your faith or they'll expose it as false and empty. Your response to even ridicule now, ridicule and embarrassment, your response to that now might be a hint to what would happen, you would do if you were persecuted. It hints at your faithfulness. See, our cultural, our culture and the whole world, the whole world rejects the truth of Jesus Christ. The world itself, the sinful world, they, they rejected it. Why? Well, besides being lost, first of all, and sinful, some of them have seen our faith as feeble. They've seen our faith as, well, why would I do that? They've seen our faith fall into sin and rebellion and loveless religiosity. They've seen that. Our false faith offers them no hope. When we, when we carry it around in, in, a, in a shell, when we don't share it, they see us as religious, not relational. They look for compassion. That's what they're looking for, compassion and love. Now, I know they're looking for love in all the wrong places and all the wrong ways, but they're looking for true love. They're also looking for grace. They're also looking for purpose. And Jesus is the, the only answer. It used to be a song, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. We can shore up our faith when we realize that God saved us for a purpose, which will never fail because it's his purpose, not ours. It's his agenda. We can strengthen our faith by telling someone the gospel, loving them through their sin. Sometimes we want to blow the gospel at them and walk away and hope God just does some kind of miracle. Love them in the midst of their sin, through their sin. Lead them to Jesus. Don't hope they find their way there. If you know you're saved forever, then you can live like you're going to heaven, and that changes everything because you have nothing to lose and everything to gain when you live like that. Okay, so Paul encourages, and as I wrap this up, Paul encourages Timothy to be brave for the gospel because Jesus saved him and secured him. That's what Paul wanted Timothy to know. When we start in chapter 2 in a, little, in a couple of weeks, it's going to be, that's why he can do certain things. But, you know, one of the most formidable weapons, one of the most formidable weapons against the sinful culture of this world is a church full of fearless believers. Not so we can go out there and yell them into submission or try to make them but because we love them. I mean, we saw in Psalms 149 this morning that we carry a double-edged sword. Do you know what that symbolizes? This. We have the truth. Use the Bible to bring truth against lies, to bring love over apathy, to bring faith versus hypocrisy. God has promised the bride of Christ, that's us, the bride of Christ will prevail. So we need to be fearless as if we know we're going to prevail because we know we are. So this morning, as we take time for a pastoral prayer, I want you to pray for your heart to be more courageous about the gospel, to be willing to tell others. So let's take a few minutes of silent prayer and then I'll close us out. Let's pray.